You're looking at a record holder. I don't know if you know this. You know what I hold the record in? Longest, one of the longest sermons ever preached at Grace Fellowship. <laughs> and you're here. 47 minutes. It was December when I was here just a few months ago. So my goal today is to break that record. That's all right, brother. Come on. Be careful. Don't applaud. Don't applaud. Let me ask you a question. Are you living out your potential? You know, many great thinkers and leaders over the years have contemplated that question, and most conclude that many people do not. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, many people die with their music, their potential still in them. Why is this so? Too often it's because they're always getting ready to live before they know it. Time runs out. Thoreau said, we do not wish to live what is not life. We want to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. But so few do. Calvin Coolidge said, the most common commodity in life is unrealized potential. And I wonder if that is the result of so many people not having a clear purpose for living. Not having a big enough why to motivate us to live out our full potential. And so the passage I want us to look at today is found in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is reminding us in one verse what our purpose is. In fact, you can look at it as a purpose statement for believers. Look at it with me, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, you may have noticed that that purpose statement starts with our identity. Did you catch that? We are his workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is poema. It's where we get the English word poem or poetry from. So think of it this way. In Christ, we are a work of divine poetry. We are his literal masterpieces. We are in Christ, his works of art. Have you ever thought of yourself as his work of art? See, our God is an encouraging God, and he inspires us by the identity that he gives us. You see, when we come to the end of ourselves and accept the free gift of eternal life found in and through the cross of Jesus, the Bible's very clear about this. We are given a brand new identity. Not only in this passage, where we're referred to as his works of art, but we read throughout the New Testament, of the identity he gives us. He calls us his children, his ambassadors. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are his royal priests. And that has nothing to do with what we have done, but rather has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did for you and I on that cross. It has everything to do with who we are in him. We are God's workmanship created in Christ. His righteousness imputed, given to you and I. See, our God is an encouraging God. Never forget that. And he inspires you and I by the identity that he gives us. But, but I believe there are some genuine followers of Christ, perhaps some of you are here today, that do not believe that. You really don't believe that about yourself. 
and you don't see yourself the way God sees you in Christ. And maybe that's because there are people in your lives that try to categorize you. They try to define you based on something in your past, a mistake, a regret, a sin. And they bring it up over and over and over again. Or maybe it's the negative silent words you speak to yourself about yourself. You know, self-talk. Recently, I was reading in Psychology Today an article, and it referenced research that would suggest that over 70% of our self-talk is negative. I'm not good enough. I'm a mess up. I'm a failure. No. In Christ, you have a brand new identity. You are his works of art. You are his ambassador. You are a child of the living God. You are his royal priests. And the reason that's so important is because our very purpose is tied to it. You see, God gives us this awesome identity because he has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for my life. And it's that we would live up to it. We'd live up to the identity that he gives us. We'd have the same mindset of the Apostle Paul who said of himself, Philippians 3.13, there is one thing I do, the Apostle says, forgetting what is in my past and straining towards what lies ahead. And we know in his past, before he became an Apostle, before his road to Damascus conversion, Paul had some pretty bad things in his past. He persecuted Christians. He stood idly by as some were murdered. And he said, I am not defined that way. I forget what is in my past, and I strain towards what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize, a transformed Christ-centered life, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Talk about a man on purpose. You see, God gives us this awesome identity to inspire us to live up to it, to inspire us to live out the second part of our purpose statement. Look at it again with me. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? Purpose. Why? To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, you will see the word, the phrase good works over and over and over again in, in the New Testament. In fact, you'll see it about 30 plus times in the New Testament. And some of the verses related to good works talk about the fact that we are not saved by our good works. In fact, the two immediate verses prior to the one we're looking at today, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the apostle Paul is telling us that. He's saying we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by your work, so that none of us can boast. We can't earn salvation. It's a gift. And the moment we humble ourselves and accept that gift, not only are we given a brand new identity, but we're also given a brand new responsibility. And that responsibility is to do good. In fact, most of those Good works verses in the New Testament are directed towards the believer to remind us that the very purpose of our lives is to glorify God by the good that we do. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. 
1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the unbelievers that they may see your good works and glorify God. We're to do good out of a heart, good motive here, out of a heart of love. It's the love of Christ flowing in and through our lives, impacting others for him. In Matthew 22, read a passage there of when the religious elite, the legal scholars, the Pharisees were challenging Jesus. They asked him the question, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, in his response, think of it this way, takes the entire Bible, condenses it into two commandments. Verse 40 all the words of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love others. That response disrupted the religious leaders of the time. And what Jesus did there was very subtle. They asked, which is the greatest commandment? He gives two, but he links them together. Love God and love others. The reason it was disruptive is because they thought they knew all about what loving God meant. See, to them, they'd say, loving God is following all the commandments to a T. Loving God is offering burnt sacrifices. Loving God is obeying the Sabbath and not working on the Sabbath. And loving God is judging everyone who does not do those things. It was all this outward stuff. But Jesus goes right for the heart. And he knew their hearts were so far from God. And he's saying in so many words, no, 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 loving God is demonstrated, it is revealed, it is made evident in your love for others, in your care, in your concern for others. Pastor and author Andy Stanley out of Atlanta, Georgia, wrote a book some time ago entitled Visioneering, where he explored the life of Nehemiah, the ordinary life of Nehemiah, and his God-given vision and purpose to do the extraordinary as he sets out to rebuild the ruined walls of Jerusalem 150 years after King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city. And in this book, Pastor Stanley lays some practical building blocks for those of us who want to live life on purpose for God. And the foundational building block, he said, is this. It begins out of concern. Concern about something in your own life or in the life of someone you know. And the reason that seems to resonate with me is because a concern or a problem stirs the emotions and the passions to do something about it. And the bigger the concern and the closer to home that it hits, the more passionate we are to do something about it. About three weeks ago, I was speaking to a group of business leaders in Houston, Texas at a leadership event, and I had the privilege and opportunity to meet John O'Leary, who was one of our keynote speakers at this event. He's a number one best-selling author. He's the founder of the Living Inspired Podcast, which is a top 20 podcast with over a million downloads. He's an incredible communicator, speaks all over the world. He's married to his wife, Beth has four lovely children, a man of faith. And he shared a story of when tragedy hit his, his life back when he was just nine years old, back in January of 1987. If you're familiar with his book, On Fire, you, you'll be familiar with the story. And so little John, at nine years old, is playing with matches in his garage, 
next to a gasoline tank when he accidentally sparked an explosion. It was so fierce that it lifted him off the ground and threw him six feet back as he slammed into the back wall of the garage. The flames leaped on him, melted his clothes, melted his skin. He ran through the house screaming for help. Luckily, his brother, Jim, 17 at the time, was in the basement, ran upstairs, threw a blanket on him, and put the flames out. By the time he got to him, the damage was done. That little boy suffered third-degree burns on over 90% of his body. The prognosis, as you could imagine, was grim. Only a half a percent chance of survival. It happened on a Saturday. The next day, as that little boy was strapped to his hospital room bed, he, his eyes were, were swollen shut. He had a trach in his throat breathing for him. So just picture it. He cannot move. He cannot see. He cannot speak. All he can do is hear. And what happened next was a slight glimmer of hope in a really dark place. And that hope came through the kind actions of a childhood hero. You see, little John loved baseball. He lived in St. Louis, Missouri. His favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals. And he had a little radio in his room, and he said he'd listen to almost every one of the St. Louis Cardinals games right there in his bedroom on that little radio, about 130 games a year. And the announcer of those games with his deep, distinctive voice was the legendary Hall of Famer, Jack Bach. Well, when Jack heard of what had happened to this little boy right in his hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, his heart was shattered. He was filled with concern for that little boy, and that concern moved him to take action. And so on the next day following this tragedy on a Sunday, as little Johnny was fighting for his life, strapped to that bed, unable to see, unable to speak, unable to move, all he could do was hear. He heard that door open in his hospital bedroom. He heard the footsteps approaching his bed. He heard a chair dragged across the floor. And then he heard someone sitting next to him. And then he heard the distinctive voice of Jack Buck. And Jack whispered in his ears, and I quote, Kid, wake up. You're going to live. You're going to survive. Keep fighting. And when you get out of here, we're going to celebrate with John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. That little boy's heart almost leaped outside of his chest. His hero sitting right next to him. He remembers the visit being very short, and the reason was because Jack didn't want to weep in front of that boy. And so he would leave, he'd go outside that hospital room, and he would weep, and he would weep, and he would weep. Then he asked the medical professionals, what more can I do? And in so many words, they said, there's, there's nothing. There's no hope. He is not going to live. But on the next day, as little Johnny was fighting for his life, unable to move, unable to see, unable to speak, all he could do is hear. And he heard that door open, and he heard those footsteps, and he heard that chair drawn closer to the bed, and he heard the voice of Jack Buck. Hey, kid, I'm back. You're going to live. You're going to survive. Keep fighting.
And for the next five months, Jack Buck continued those visits day in and day out. And when his work took him away with the St. Louis Cardinals, he would send someone in his place, usually a pro baseball player. Well, against all the odds, after almost spending a half a year in that hospital, that little boy, Johnny, was released. And when he was, Buck lived up to his promise, and they celebrated John O'Leary Day at the Old Bush Memorial Stadium, home stadium for the St. Louis Cardinals. The whole day dedicated to, the, to, to that little boy. And little, little Johnny sat next to Jack Buck in the announcer's booth. He was on cloud nine. Well, as if it couldn't get any better, the next day, little Johnny's home, reflecting on the awesome day he had just prior. And he gets a package in the mail. It's from Jack. He opens it up. It's an autographed baseball from Ozzie Smith, one of the great players for the Cardinals at that time. And there's a note from Jack. He opens it, and it says, Hey, kid, you want another autographed baseball? All you have to do is write a thank you note to Ozzie. The problem was he lost all his fingers in the fire. They were all amputated. And the boy thought to himself, he knows I can't write. But Jack Buck understood the power of inspiration and the power of hope. And he wanted to encourage him to relearn how to write. Boy, did he make Johnny's parents' life a lot easier because they wanted him to relearn how to write. But the big why he had was, I want another baseball. And he learned and he scribbled it wasn't neat, but he, he, he wrote that thank you note. He sent it out. Shortly after, he gets another package from Jack Buck, another autographed baseball with another note from Jack. He opens it. Hey, kid, you want a third baseball? All you have to do is sign a thank you note. That boy collected over 60 signed Baseball's that way. The power of inspiration. At that leadership event, John O'Leary put up this photo, and it's a photo of Jack Buck with John O'Leary, obviously Jack, the gentleman on your left. And this is when John graduated from college. You wouldn't know it in this picture, but Jack Buck has terminal cancer in this photo. He dies shortly after it. Look at his eyes. Look at the hope. John O'Leary said these words at that leadership event about Jack. And he put it up, said, this is a picture of love. He said, and I quote, Jack made a profound difference in my life, not only during the five months that I was in the hospital, but many years afterwards. He said, Jack's love for me made such an impact on my perspective, on my recovery, on my faith, on my life. And it all started with concern. Buck's concern for that little boy in the hospital. So friends, what are you concerned about? You know, if Jesus' life modeled anything, it modeled that he was concerned about people. 
whether it was when he came to the defense of the prostitute who was about to be stoned to death by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, whether it was how he came to touch the lives of so many people who are grieving and hurting in this world, whether it was when he came to this earth in the first place, showing us and demonstrating to us that God, our Father, is concerned about every human soul. There is one thing so obvious and clear about our God, and that is this. He's concerned about people and his purpose for your life and mine as his ambassadors, as his children, as his royal priests, as his workmanship. It's that we too ought to be concerned. So what are you concerned about? Maybe there's an area in your own life that you haven't yielded fully to God. Maybe it's a besetting sin and you haven't repented from it. You haven't turned away from it and you know deep down things should be different. Maybe in your own life you realize that you rarely, if ever, share your personal testimony of faith and yet there are people in your life, family members, colleagues, friends that would benefit greatly to hear your personal story, and to hear the gospel message of hope. And you know things should be different. Maybe it's a relationship you're in. It's not that good. Maybe it's your marriage. And it's marked by tension and frustration and anger, where you either argue all the time or you rarely ever communicate, and you know things should be different. Maybe it's a life experience in dealing with an aging loved one, and it's brought you to the nursing home. And while you're there, you've seen some of the residents, and you see the hopelessness in their eyes and the loneliness, and you know things should be different. Or maybe you're aware of a need. In your community, children that are hungry, families that are struggling, and you know Deep down, things should be different. See, the question is, will we be the difference makers? We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance before we were even born to do. Now, here's the rub. Those good works don't just automatically happen, do they? They don't for me. In fact, the passage says we're to do them. Your translation may say we are to walk in them. Now, don't get me wrong. Apart from Jesus Christ, John 15, 5, we can do nothing. We are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. We are strengthened by the very grace of God. Without that, we can do nothing. It's actually what motivates us to do it. But don't ever think we don't have a part. We do. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes discipline on our part. What makes it even harder is the good work he calls us to do always carries a cost. It's the cost of discipleship. There's always a risk. Think of Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah 
had enemies at every turn that wanted to kill him for the good work he was doing to try to protect the Jewish people. Think about Jack Buck and the commitment and the time that he invested in that little boy. There is always a cost. There's always a risk when we give a bit of ourselves away for God and for others. I mean, think about it. Sharing your faith can be risky. People may ridicule you or deny you. Admitting you were wrong in a relationship, risky. Leaves you vulnerable. Maybe they'll take advantage of you. Turning from a sin that you've never fully yielded to God, it's risky. There's a cost. Will I be satisfied without it? There's always a risk. There's always a cost. Giving time and resources to organizations that give hope where there is no hope. Risky. Will I have enough for my family, for myself? I'd rather do something else with the money. I'd rather do something else with my time. Following a passion that God has placed on your heart, but you have buried it and buried it over all these years, and now you want to pursue it. Risky. I'm too old. It's too late. I might fail. It takes courage to live life on purpose for God. John Ortberg said, and I quote, fear makes people bury the treasure God has given them. Fear makes people disobedient to the calling of their master. Fear makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. Fear keeps you from truly living. You know, that's why one of the most often quoted commands in the Bible, from God to you and me, is fear not. Do not be afraid. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think God designs our purpose statement that way? Why does he design our purpose this way? Why do we have to step out of our comfort zones? Why does there have to be a cost? Why does there have to be risk? Why does it require courage? You ever ask yourself that? Because it's required. Why? Well, the reason is because it's the way we demonstrate faith. It's the way we demonstrate genuine faith. Look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, the definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I mean, think about that. Acting out of conviction and not knowing how it's going to turn out. It's risky. Takes courage. The very definition shows that to us, doesn't it? Let me, let me share a quick story. I, I have time. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble with that. Um, one of my favorite Bible teachers is pastor and author John Piper. 
He was a keynote speaker last month at an international conference of pastors and leaders, and they come from all over. And in his talk, he ended it with this story. It's a story about a homeless, young homeless couple. They lived out of their car, and they decided to park their car directly across the street from where Pastor John lived. Now, there was no one that lives on the other side of the street. It's a vacant lot, just a few neighbors to the left, and so he would talk with the other neighbors, and they decided and agreed not to call the police. And so Pastor John would try to help them with some money. He'd put them up in motels for a, a few days. Can't do that for too long. But he lined up about three shelters that would take them in. And uh, so they ended up not really just wanting to go to any of those shelters. They were kind of deciding on which one they wanted to go to. So they, they, they were living out of their car across the street from Pastor John for quite some time. And then the cold weather came. And on this particular night, it was five degrees out. Pastor John's up in his bedroom looking out the window. He cannot sleep because he sees the car right there. He can't sleep. He's worried about it. It's too cold. They can't be out there. So he talks to his wife, Noel, and they decide we're going to invite them to stay with us. Now, the Pipers are in their 70s. And they understood the risk. What if they rob us? What if they harm us? What if, what if, what if? But they had a peace about it. In fact, Pastor John would say over and over again, he would hear the words of Jesus, it is better to give than to receive. It is better to give than to receive. And so in spite of the risk, they stepped out in faith. Now, did they know how it was going to turn out? Nope. They did it anyway. Pastor John walks out that front door of his house, walks to the car, knocks on the window. The man rolls the window down. Hey, we'd like you to come inside. It's too cold. You can't be out here. Please come on inside. The man turns to the woman in the back. She's all cozy, cozy, cozy back there. In fact, he said he was so surprised at how warm it was in the car. They talk among themselves, and uh, the man comes back and says, no, we're good, thank you. And then Pastor John goes, no, really, it would make us so happy if you would just come inside, it's too cold. And the man said, no, we're good, thank you. Now, I tell you the story for what Pastor John said as he was walking back to his home. He said two overwhelming emotions came over him. The first one was sadness. How messed up this world is. But there are people that are living out of their cars. And then he said this, and I quote, and then I felt an overwhelming sense of joy knowing that we did the right thing. He said, I felt, a I felt like a genuine follower of Christ and it felt really Really good. You see, God's plan, God's purpose for our life, life takes courage. But when we step out in faith, that's when we begin to experience the joy. That's when we begin to experience life to the fullest. In fact, that's when we begin to be most satisfied. In him. One of, the, 
One of the lines that Pastor John often says, and I love it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I don't believe we'll ever reach that level of joy and satisfaction unless we step out in faith and then realize the power of the cross in and through our lives. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said this, and I quote, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering step, like the legs of a person walking. First faith, then works, then faith again, then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. I want to end with, I think, one of the most vivid pictures of risk-taking in the Bible found in Matthew 14 is when Peter walked on water. Very quickly, the disciples are traveling by boat. Jesus is not with them. He's on the other side of the shore. And as they're traveling, it's dark now. The winds are blowing. And Jesus walks on water to them. And they were scared to death. They didn't know what that was walking towards them. Jesus said, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come. And Jesus said, let's go. Come on. He commands him to come. My mind goes to Jesus, and I, and I picture his expression as Peter leaves the safety of the boat and follows his command. And I picture Jesus smiling from ear to ear, and I picture him yelling words of encouragement, because our God is an encouraging God. You can do it. You can do it. And then my mind shifts to Peter. When he leaves the safety of the boat and walks in faith towards Christ, takes an enormous risk, right? And I believe as he's walking on water, I believe he was elated. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Look at me, look at me. As he looks at the other disciples and says, you little scaredy cats, you know. It's when we step out in faith and take risks for God. That's when we truly begin to live. So let's heed the warnings of those great thinkers who've concluded that most people do not live life to the fullest. Most people do not live out their full potential and do not live life on and I end with this quote from Greg Lavoie in his book, Callings. We do not want to get to the end and think. Sinful patterns of behavior never got confronted and changed. Abilities and gifts that never got cultivated and deployed. Deep, intimate, gut-wrenchingly honest conversations you never had. Great, bold prayers you never prayed. Exhilarating risks you never took, sacrificial gifts you never offered, lives you never touched. And you realize there was a world of desperate need and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than you. 
You see the person who could but did not. You never followed his plan. You never got out of the boat. Now, the good news is no one here is at the end. We have air in our lungs, and no matter how old we are, it's never too late because our God's mercies are new every morning. So here's, here's my challenge to all of us, Grace Fellowship. Let's strive towards living the way God designed and equipped us to live in Christ. Let's live on purpose for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. And Father, only you know where everyone is on their journey to you. And so my prayer, Father, today is that every one of us would feel the depths of your love for every human soul through the cross. That we'd feel loved because we are loved in Christ. And my prayer is that wherever we are in our journey to you, that that would draw us closer to you in and through the cross of Jesus. It is the hope of the world. And Father, my prayer is that that love would help move us to take a step of faith, to take risk for your glory and for our good because you are a God worthy of trust. We praise your name. We thank you for all you have done for us. We thank you for all that you will continue to do in us. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.